Let me pray for us before we get into the message. God, we thank you for your church and just what a unique organism it is in the world. We thank you that you've called us to care for one another, to love one another, to lay our lives down in service for each other out of reverence and love and respect for you. And I pray that we would be committed to those things, that, that we wouldn't see church as this thing that we do on Sunday morning, but truly this beautiful, precious, living organism that we belong to, that lives because of your Spirit and exists because Christ died and rose again. And I pray that we would embody that in such a way that, that those on the outside of the church would look and just wonder at the way the people of God are different. Would you, would you help us to live that out in reality? And we thank you for your word. We do thank you for the precious opportunity on Sunday morning to gather together and to sing songs of praise about your glory and your redemptive work in our lives and an opportunity to fellowship with one another and express our love for each other and encourage one another with our mouths and the opportunity to sit under your word and to be taught and to learn and to listen. And I pray that you would bless every one of those endeavors as we do them on Sundays together. And so, Father, we turn our hearts and our attention to you, and we pray that you would move and transform us and work in your grace. In Christ's name, amen. John Wesley said that nothing in the world is done redemptively except through prayer. God does nothing redemptively in the world except through prayer. And I want to say that I think that indeed is true, and I hope that as we look at our text of Scripture this morning, that I am able to support Wesley's claim. Today we're continuing this series that I'm calling Bless. Hopefully last week you got a bookmark or a three-by-five card. I don't know if the extras made it into your bulletins again this week, but if not, we've got some by the, the giving box in the back if you want to grab one on the way out. But that's just sort of a, a framework for the series that we're going through. And uh, if you were here last week, you remember I said I have two goals as we go through this series called Bless, okay? The first one is that I hope to steal or, or stir in your heart a zeal for, you want to grab it? For distractions in church. Just kidding. Man, I'm sorry. Is it broken? Okay. Okay, well, I hope to stir in your heart a zeal for God's mission for the church. Uh, that we would understand that it is our responsibility to take the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ, out to the ends of the earth, and that you would feel a burden and a passion and a desire to be part of that. I hope that our study of Scripture together this week and in the weeks to come will just ignite our souls to feel a passion for Christ's mission to save people, and that in that we would bring God great glory through that work, that we would prove our love for him as we seek to do that, and that we would obey his command to take the salvation 
of Christ out of those doors and into Maricopa in particular, where we are all planted by God for His purposes. And think about this. If there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than Jesus Christ, then this really is an all-important task that we have been called to. If Christ is the only name by which people can be saved, then the work that we have to carry his name out to people is all-important. It's an urgent life-or-death matter. It is of the greatest consequences that we endeavor to do this. The second thing I want to do is give you just a simple strategy for how to do this. Because maybe you're like, man, Grady, I can feel God sort of stirring that zeal in my heart, but I don't know where to even begin. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go about doing this. And since Jesus has commanded us to go and share the gospel and make disciples, I want to try and give you just a simple set of steps that you can do in order to obey that command and take that burden upon you. So the strategy that I'm laying out for us in the coming weeks is called BLESS. I mentioned last week it's an acronym. Hopefully you have that bookmark somewhere, or again, if not, grab one on the way out. And today we're going to talk about the B, and I have it for you on a slide as well. B is begin with prayer. Is our screen working? Oh yeah. Coming up in the world. As we carry out God's mission to seek and to save the lost, where do we begin? Well, we begin with prayer. Where else would we begin? We are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God in this endeavor, and so we begin with prayer. Why don't you open your Bible with me to John 17, and I'm going to do a classic preaching thing and tell you to open it, and then we're going to get to it in like 20 minutes. So put your finger in there, and hopefully you don't sweat through the page. We're going to get to John 17, and what we're going to find in John 17 is this rich and beautiful record of a prayer that Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. And how precious these words are, how blessed we are, that we get to have the intimate conversation of Jesus Christ with his heavenly Father recorded for us, that we might learn from it and grow by it and be inspired and encouraged by it. But I think before we get to John 17, we do need to address a fundamental question. And here's the question. Do we actually believe that prayer does anything? Do you actually believe that prayer does anything? Or are you weighed down with unbelief so that your prayers are timid, that you only pray rarely, that you don't believe that anything might actually be accomplished through those prayers. I mean, are we convinced in our soul that prayer is important in God accomplishing His will, or do we doubt that truth and in our doubting then pray little? Do we lift up prayers for lost people, or do we disbelieve that God even cares for them? I came across a little story about prayer. It takes place in the early 1800s, and it goes like this. At the close of a prayer meeting at a church, the pastor observed a little girl with her head still bowed. She was probably 12 or so, and she was just remaining on her knees, kind of on the floor with her head low, while most of the rest of the congregation had left. And so thinking she had fallen asleep, he comes over and he touches her gently to wake her up. 
And to his surprise, he finds, he finds that she is actually still engaged in prayer. And he said, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith to encourage the girl. And she looked at him and she said, is it so? Does God say that? And he took up a Bible and he read the passage aloud and she immediately commenced praying, Lord, send my father to the church. Lord, send my father here. Thus she continued to pray for about a half an hour, attracting by her earnest, crying the attention of those who were still milling by the back door of the church. And at last, a man rushed into the church. He ran up the aisle. He sank upon his knees by the side of his daughter and exclaimed, What do you want of me? And she threw her arms around his neck and began to pray, Oh Lord, convert my father. And soon the man's heart was melted. And he began to pray for himself. The girl's father was three miles from the church when, he was, or when she began praying for him. And he was in the process of loading some goods into his wagon. And he felt this irresistible urge to return back home. And so he drove rapidly to his house. He left the goods there in the wagon and then went to the church where he found his daughter crying out mightily for God to do this saving work in his life. And at that moment, he gave his life to Christ in response to her cries. Okay, this is a true story, but if you're a skeptic like me, my first response when I read it was, this is a stupid story, right? Because the inner doubter in me disbelieved. This didn't really happen. God doesn't act like that. Prayer doesn't work like that. God doesn't do that kind of thing, right? Maybe you two were sitting here listening to the story going like, oh, where's he going with this? But I want you to understand, my response to this story in that way is not at all a reflection on God. It is a reflection on my own unbelief, isn't it? I mean, I've been reading the, books of, the book of Acts in my Bible in my personal quiet time with Jesus, and just story after story after story reveals a God who changes hearts, a God who answers prayers, who responds to his people, who saves the lost, who intervenes, often miraculously, to transform hard human hearts in response to the gospel. Scripture is filled with God's radical intervention in the lives of people in response to prayer, is it not? So why do I disbelieve? If I doubt the story of the little girl I just told, it's not because God does not work like that. It's because I doubt God. And I doubt the power of prayer. And I doubt that God takes joy in responding to our prayers. But what Scripture teaches is that God does respond to our prayers. Scripture teaches us God is powerful to respond and that He listens. And in this mysterious way, He loves to partner with us in our prayers. His Word reveals our God takes seriously the prayers of His people, especially when we endeavor to pray on behalf of those who are far from God. He loves to respond. And maybe one of the best illustrations of this is when Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom in Genesis 18. Maybe you know this story. 
It's really kind of a mind-boggling story, actually. We find an amazing example of one man's courage to pray and to plead on behalf of godless people and trust that God will actually respond to his prayers. So if you remember the story, it goes a little bit like this. God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom. This is a, a town filled with rampant wickedness. And Abraham actually has the guts to pray on their behalf that God would spare them. And with really a shameless assertiveness, Abraham negotiates back and forth with God, asking him to spare the people of this city. And what's amazing is that God actually begins this bartering process with Abraham and gets talked down to Abraham's terms. And God agrees and says, Abraham, listen, if I can find 10 righteous people in this city, I will relent of my intention to destroy it. Now, Sodom ends up burned to ashes because there's not a single righteous person in the city. And I think the ultimate point of the story is that Christ is the only righteous one, of course. But I think that there's an amazing theological point here. God listens and God responds to bold prayers when his people ask him to show mercy in saving people. And so hear me, if our prayers are few and if our prayers are timid because we doubt our God, the problem is not with our God. The problem is in us. God is, in fact, more than willing. But we of little faith who fail to trust and believe, we have the problem when we don't bring our prayers with courage to our God, believing that he longs to save lost people by his grace. Jesus died to save people. What does that tell us about our God's willingness to save? And so I guess if you hear anything this morning, it would only be this. So like if you're the kind of person who's waiting for your chance to check out, here it comes. Just hear this and then you can be done for the day. Pray. Would you please begin with prayer as we think about what it means for our church to reach our city? Would you just begin by praying and believe that God has power to save? It is time for us to be about the prayer of salvation for the lost here in Maricopa. So let's get to our text from John 17. And this is a prayer that Jesus prays in the hours before his arrest and ultimately his crucifixion and resurrection. And I think the prayer has really three movements to it. First, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then the movement transitions to a prayer for his followers in verses 6 through 19. And then finally, he prays for us specifically in verses 20 to 26. And we begin our journey of bringing the gospel to the world, blessing others through the good news of Jesus. We begin this journey in prayer, looking at the prayer of Jesus, transitioning from the twilight of the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant, and now the dawn of the new covenant where Jesus prays in this transition. He lifts up a prayer to God. And I can't think of anyone who probably needed to pray less than Jesus. 
right? And yet, was there anybody who prayed more than Jesus? I'm certain no one has ever prayed more than Jesus. And yet, he had perfect union with God, his Father. If anybody had an excuse not to pray, it was him. And yet, he did it, and he gives us this example. And so, we chase after him in this example. So, let's read this prayer, starting with verses 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What I want to point out in in this first movement of the prayer is that Jesus prayed for his glory. He asked that God would glorify the Son so that the Son might then glorify the Father in this beautiful plan of salvation and redemption. And this is really just a continuation of what we spoke about last week, if you were here. That the mission of the church is to save lost people for the glory of God. That God might be rightly praised for eternity, for the salvation he has won for us. And we see in these verses that Jesus, he directly connects the glory of God to the saving work of Christ's death and resurrection. In verse 1, Jesus says, the hour has come. Well, what is the hour? He's not talking about like 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. That's not the point. The hour of which he is speaking is this series of events that's about to unfold that will put the perfectly righteous Son of God onto the cross, who will die for the sins of the world, so that the sins of unrighteous people might be atoned for, The events which will glorify God ultimately, not only in the death of Christ, but in the resurrection and an empty tomb, proving God's power over death and sin and evil, so that the sinners whose wicked deeds Christ went to the cross to atone for might also receive everlasting life in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is making, I think, an incredibly bold statement here that God is greatly glorified in the death and resurrection of his Son because it is the death and resurrection of the Son of God which brings salvation to those who believe. And I want you to see how explicit this connection is. Jesus is praying over his atoning death in these verses, and then right in the middle, verse 3, He slips in this comment on eternal life. So Jesus then attaches our eternal life to his death and his death to his glory. So it's fair to say, again, the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is what brings God glory, specifically because through the atoning death of Christ, man finds salvation. Jesus prays, God, be glorified through this death because it is this death that produces eternal life. 
Which is why then Jesus pleads with God that people would know the truth. This plan of salvation that comes through Christ alone. And my hope is that we'll echo this prayer, right? If you're going to begin with prayer, how should you begin? Well, why not echo this prayer? That those around us would have eternal life through knowing that Jesus Christ is life. I think we can actually take these specific words and do what that little bulletin insert does. And I think I've got a slide for this too in case you didn't grab a bulletin. Let's pray this prayer. Like, why not tack this prayer onto your fridge? Why not slip this prayer into your Bible or put it on the visor of your car windshield? Inserting the name of those that we care about boldly into the words of Jesus Christ, like this. Father, I pray for Raphael and Sam that you would give them eternal life. That Raphael and Sam, my neighbors, would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I mean, what if you took the words of Jesus and boldly inserted the name of your friend, neighbor, coworker, and spit them right back out at Christ and said, God, for your glory, in mercy upon them, would you hear this prayer? Man, what if you wrote that prayer down and you put it in your Bible and you prayed that faithfully over the weeks, months, maybe years ahead with your friend or your neighbor's name inserted there? Can you dream with me what God might do? Our God who takes pleasure in answering these kinds of prayers that he might be greatly glorified. Can you imagine what he might do if his people were faithful in believing that God loves to answer prayers like this in response to us? If we prayed together boldly, what power on earth could resist the authority of our God to save as we pray in faith. Mary, Queen of Scots, said of the pastor John Knox, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. May that be said of Maricopa Springs Family Church by those in this city, that our city sees more power in our prayers to Almighty God than in an army of 10,000 strong. So may we be faithful to pray for God's glory to shine forth in the salvation of Jesus Christ. May we be faithful to pray like Jesus because we believe our God saves. Next, Jesus prays for his followers in verses 6 through 18. He says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. There's so much here. I'm I'm only going to touch on one thing. But first, notice verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I covered this last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go check out the YouTube video or the audio off of our website. I just want you to see again that Jesus prays for his followers that they would be sent out into the world. The primary reason why we are still here on earth and not caught up in heaven to be with Jesus already is because Jesus has given us this mission to go. That's why you're here. We are his ambassadors to a broken world, bringing news of hope and peace and salvation. We are sent out like him to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and comfort to all who mourn. But the real gem here that I want you to see is in verse 15, where Jesus prays, That as we stay on earth endeavoring to accomplish this mission, that God the Father would keep Christ's people from the evil one. I want to connect that word keep that you find there to the other place that it shows up in this scripture, which is verse 11. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they might be one even as we are one. Look, one of the greatest ways that Satan devours the people of God and derails the mission of the church is by destroying the unity of believers from the inside out. What better way to tank the work of the gospel than by, dis- uh, by distracting Christians from the mission that God has given us with our silly little internal squabbles about what we think is important. What better way to rob God of his glory than to keep Christians from doing the work of sharing the gospel because Christians are too distracted fighting each other to care about the mission that God has given us. I mean, Satan really gets a double whammy when we squabble amongst ourselves, doesn't he? He ruins the unity that we have in Christ, and he sows seeds of resentment and bitterness. He makes the church an embarrassment, a blemish upon the glory of Christ by sort of undermining Christ's claims about love. And then he also takes our focus off of kicking in the doors of hell because we're too busy kicking each other in the shins. There was a man who had some prized foxhounds, and one day the foxhounds got in a fight in their pen, right? And this man saw his prized dogs literally biting and devouring each other. 
And he couldn't figure out a way to get them from going at each other's throats until he remembered he had a fox in a pen. And when he loosed the fox, the dogs forgot about their fight and they went chasing after the fox. Fighting dogs do not hunt. And hunting dogs don't waste time fighting each other. And so it is with the church. When we are focused on God's mission together, we grow in unity because of this great cause of Christ. We need to be prized hunting dogs on mission together for Jesus, giving no opportunity to the devil to divide us from that work. Unified around God's plan to keep us in the world so that we might sniff out and grab and rescue those who are lost. It's important we understand that our petty fights, our petty differences, our petty squabbles, they do nothing to glorify Jesus and advance the cause of Christ. They do nothing to bring glory to Christ when we defend ourselves in pride. They don't gain ground into Satan's territory, and they don't convince a lost world of the persuading, loving mercy and grace of God. But when we love each other, and when we love the mission of Jesus, and we love the glory of God in saving sinners, then the kingdom of God moves forward with unstoppable power. It may be inch by inch, but it is an unstoppable movement as the people of God pray and they labor for the name of Jesus to be lifted up among men, that he might be praised and honored rightly. Jesus prays this for his disciples because he knows the church is going to need this prayer as we face opposition in this mission. Now in the last section of our text, Jesus prays specifically for us. This is verses 20 to 26. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I think verse 22, you've probably heard me say this before, is probably the most astounding verse in all of the New Testament. I mean, there's some really mind-blowing ideas all through the pages of the New Testament, but this one in particular is tough to even conceptualize. Jesus has given his glory to us. Now, we could wrongly conclude that because Jesus has done that, we now get to just sit back and bask in the glory that he has poured out on us. We get to just vacation our way into eternity because Christ 
has laid his glory upon us. But Jesus actually doesn't give us the liberty to do that. Because he tells us in verse 22 that he has given us his glory, which he then connects to a purpose clause in verse 23. Do you see this? So you can filter out the explanatory text in verses 22 and 23, and it would sound like this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So Jesus prays that our unity and our glory has the purpose of helping the world see that Jesus is God. Jesus gives us his glory so that the world might see the glory of Jesus Christ in us. There is a definite purpose The unity that Jesus prays for us and the glory he shares with us is so that we might testify about Christ. And it's through us then that Jesus continues to make his name known among the world, proving his power, proving his authority as we participate in plucking sinners out of eternal destruction and leading them then into the kingdom of God as worshipers of God. This is the redemptive work of Jesus through us, which comes as a result of Christ praying for us. Like Wesley claimed, God does nothing redemptively in the world except through prayer. The redemptive work of Jesus begins in part because of this prayer. God answers this prayer. I hope you see And it should lead us then to pray to begin our ministry of going out and making disciples by first praying for those that God has placed in our lives and appealing to God on their behalf. Praying that Jesus would be glorified. Praying that we would have the courage to preach the good news and proclaim with boldness and confidence that our God saves. Praying that God would change the hearts of those that he leads us to. Because ultimately this is his work. It's his work. It's his to do. It's ours to engage in, but it's too much for us to do on our own. And so we begin in prayer. Let me close with just a short quote by Phil Riken and Kent Hughes in their commentary on Exodus. And I think I've got nice. Okay, they say this, why does it all depend on prayer? Why is prayer such an effective spiritual weapon? Why does it make the difference between victory and defeat? The answer is that God is the difference between victory and defeat, and it is by prayer that we depend on him to win the battle. The victory depends on prayer because God ultimately won the victory. Dependence, or I'm sorry, the victory depends on prayer because ultimately the victory depends on God. There's a lot of talk these days about the power of prayer, Some Christians think that prayer itself is the important thing. If only we pray long enough, hard enough, or often enough, then God will do what we want him to do. The focus then becomes finding the right method of prayer. While it's good to pray early and often, the power of prayer is not the prayer itself, but the power of God. And he's already told us that this is his mission. This is his intention. This is what he's putting his power into, 
the redemption of mankind through Christ. And so even if our prayers are weak then, we be encouraged and we pray. Even if our prayers are motivated by the wrong things, we pray. Even if our commitment is small, we pray because our God is great. And even if our ambitions are too cautious, we still pray and we have confidence God will surely be pleased to hear the prayers of his people on behalf of the lost and he will be glad to answer, to save sinners, to advance his cause, to fill heaven with worshipers, to glorify his name because this is his mission and we are appointed as workers. So let's pray And then let's labor in this mission that Christ has given us and let's watch as God does awesome wonders to save people in Maricopa. God, we do pray. And we acknowledge our prayers are laced with doubt. They're laced with self-interest. They're laced with fear. They're weak. They're timid. But we trust in a God who is great. And we believe that this is the mission that your word points us to. And so we pray and we appeal to you for your sake, for your glory, out of love for you, out of obedience to Christ. We pray. God, for every person whose name came to mind when those blank spaces were on the screen with the prayer of Christ, God, we pray for them that you would save them, that you would open their eyes, that you would pluck them out of death and lead them into your kingdom. That you would use us in your plan to do that. That we would be faithful to pray and faithful to proclaim. That we would trust you and plead on their behalf. And God, none of this is for our glory. It's not for our sake. It's for your kingdom and your glory. That the world might know that our God saves Our God is great. Our God is gracious. He loves and He redeems. Christ died and rose again. That God might be glorified and man might be redeemed. Lord, would you do this work, we pray, for your sake. In Christ's name, amen.